Take your copy of God's Word and open it to Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and the verses we will be looking at this morning are verses 25 to 37. Luke, 25, Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. Follow along as I read the text. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Last Sunday during the Super Bowl, there were many ads for much money (laughs) spent Uh, One of the ads that has, I think, become a favorite of many was by State Farm, and um, they had Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, be the representative for their company wearing the red State Farm shirt, and uh, of course, their slogan for State Farm is, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there for their insurance company. Arnold comes out and... the iconic red shirt, State Farm logo, and there's like an action scene, and just like the action hero he is, he, is, he pops out, and he says the line, like a good neighbor. <laughs> and uh, so then the, the director says, cut, and he says, Arnold, it's neighbor. And he says, that's what I said, neighbor. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and so then, of course, the rest of the commercial plays off of Arnold's uh, iconic Austrian accent and how he cannot pronounce neighbor and uh, or neighbor and so the irony of the commercial uh, beyond just the humor of it is that he is supposed to be the company's representative he's wearing the the shirt and he's representing the company and yet he cannot even say their slogan correctly and of course they play on all these different ways he says uh, the end of words with uh (laughs) and uh, but he cannot get it right And that is our exact situation in Luke chapter 10, believe it or not. You have what is essentially a representative of Israel, uh, a a scholar in the law, representing an expert in the law of Moses, and he doesn't even know who his neighbor is. This guy doesn't even know who his neighbor is. Not only that, he doesn't even know how to inherit eternal life. And so we have this representative who doesn't know some of the basics. Just as Arnold cannot enunciate the word neighbor properly, so the lawyer could not identify his neighbor properly or his need. Yet even this reveals something significant about this story because I would say that most people, this is probably the most uh, famous parable of Jesus. Like 
most everyone, even if they're not a Christian, has either heard this story or they use the phrase, a good Samaritan, and they maybe not, don't realize where it came from, but they at least know the, the, the term we use. And yet, I would venture to say this is probably one of the most misinterpreted parables of Jesus. It is not primarily about the identity of the neighbor, but it's about eternal life. And ironically, you know, you have one of the most familiar parables, and yet it also seems to be one of the most misunderstood. One pastor wrote this. He says, quote, The most misinterpreted and wrongly applied of Jesus' parables is certainly the story of the Good Samaritan. The pre- and see if this rings true in your, in your mind, what you've heard. The prevailing contemporary understanding of this passage sees the story through the lens of Christian ethics as if the Samaritan was invented by Jesus as a means of demonstrating to Christians how they should express God's love to the world. This interpretation, common as it may be, is the polar opposite of what Jesus meant by the parable. Jesus did not tell this parable to illustrate how we are supposed to live, but rather to refute the idea that being a good neighbor can earn you salvation. The Samaritan is not in scripture to serve as an example of Christian ethics and to conscript him for that cause largely misses Jesus' point. Wow. I would say then that it is probably one of the most misinterpreted because I think that that is the vast majority of people who would take this parable that way. And I want to suggest to you that this is about the impossibility of earning your own salvation by law-keeping or being a good person or good neighbor, not about an imperative to be a good neighbor. Is it good to be a good neighbor? Absolutely. Is it encouraged in Scripture and other places to care for the widow and the orphan and those in need? Yes, it is. Is that the point of this story? I would say no. Though it may be a secondary application, it is certainly not the primary message of this parable. Now, remember the context Back in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, it said this, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus introduced two categories of people, the wise and understanding, and we saw that last time, those those who are prideful, the know-it-alls, and the little children. These are believers who have humbled themselves. And it seems to me that these two categories are then represented in the next two stories following that passage. The parable of the Good Samaritan, where you have the lawyer or the religious expert who represents a person who is wise and understanding. And then you have Mary and Martha, and Mary especially uh, seems to indicate one who is like a little child, who has humbled herself and who is preoccupied with Jesus and knowing and enjoying him. And so it's as if Jesus is just applying, the, or Luke is, placing these two here to show examples of those two kinds of people. One who have the truth hidden from them, and they're not believers, and the others who've had it revealed by God and his grace, and they are believers. So what do we want to see from this passage? What we might call, what is the sermon in a sentence? Give me the sermon in a sentence, Robert, so I can go to sleep. No, uh, No, no, they'll do that. (laughs) Uh, But here is the sermon essentially in a sentence. It is this, that it's the unchanging scriptures show the standard for salvation to the self-righteous and self-justifying so that they might stop striving and seek salvation in the Savior who has come. All right, mouthful there. But we're gonna unfold that in our text And here is what we want to do. There's really a simple breakdown of this passage. There's two parts to it, and so we have two points. The first is the section where Jesus is interacting uh, with the uh, religious leader here, with this expert in the law, this lawyer. And the second is the actual story of the prodigal, or I mean of the uh, Samaritan, good Samaritan. So we'll call the first section in verses 25 to 28, the consistent standard the consistent standard. And then we'll call verses 29 to 37 the convicting story. The convicting story. Let's first consider the consistent standard, verses 25 to 28. I got some sub points for you to hang on and follow along. 
The first is the right question, the right question. Verse 25, look there again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you hear lawyer, don't think Judge Judy, you know, or some TV show, uh, but think uh, in this Jewish context. The lawyer here is um, not someone who's solving cases judicially in that sense, but someone who is an expert in the Mosaic law. Uh, this guy is like a PhD in theology. He's like a seminary professor. Uh, he really knows the Bible well. And so he is a great representative of Israel. And of course, uh, he stands up to ask Jesus a question. Luke reveals to us, though, his motive. We have the reader's edge. Uh, we know what the other people in the crowd don't know. Why is he asking this question? And it says, Luke tells us that it was to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test. He's testing Jesus. He is self-righteous, as we're going to see. Now, however, on the surface, if you didn't know that, this is a decent question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you could get, you know, persnickety and detailed and be like, you don't have to do anything. It's, it's by grace alone, through faith alone. But if we want to just, you know, be generous and say, what must I do? We might say, Repent and believe, right? Turn away from your sin and trust alone in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is your only hope in life and in death for you to be right with God, right? So we can see it either way. Now we're gonna see as it, as it bears out, this guy is probably thinking, what must I do? What, what good deeds should I do to be acceptable before God? But it is an important question. It is one of the most important questions, but how sad is it that people can be an expert in the scriptures in some regard, and yet they don't know the answer to this question. They could have spent years studying theology, reading the Bible, and yet they can't real they don't know experientially that they are right with God. It can happen to us. Any anyone who spends much time in the Word, the danger of those who handle the scriptures much. Jeroff Davis, he says this, that he seems, the lawyer, he seems more, um, more concerned with critiquing Jesus than having eternal life. Eternal life is not a passion of his soul, but a topic for debate. He's not wanting to satisfy a crying need, but to engage in a battle of wits. He just is like, he, he's like the seminary student. He just wants like debate. He just wants to have the argument and just, you know, logically think it through, but it's not really affecting him. It doesn't really uh, impact him. Which leads then to Jesus' response in verse 26. Because this is a smokescreen, this question. Jesus seems to know that. Uh, but before we look at verse 26, just ask yourself this question. Can you give a correct response to this question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can a person inherit eternal life? Could you explain that to someone in a way that if they knew nothing, that they could understand and be saved? Well, we want to be able to do that. Uh, in a moment's notice. Well, that's the right question. Next, we see the right source. The right source. Look now at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And here Jesus is like the, the great rabbi answers a question with a question. And it's like a, it's a story of a rabbi who uh, his student asked him, you know, rabbi, why do you always answer a question with a question? And he said, What's wrong with that? <laughs> but here's where he directs him. Jesus directs him to the scriptures, to the unchanging standard of authority. Now, he asks him two questions. These are related, but I think they are different. The first question is, what is written in the law? This is a question of what does the text say? What, what does the text say that is relevant to this question that you're asking? And the second question he asks is, how do you read it? How do you read it? And that is more of an interpretation kind of question. Not just tell me what it says, but what does it mean? Now, we live in a day where everyone just says like, what does it mean to you? You know, some people have Bible studies and it's just like a pooling of ignorance because no one studied the passage. No one actually knows what it means. It's just people saying, what do you think it means? Oh, that's a good idea. What do you think it means? Well, I think it means this. It's like, great, you know, let's 
Close in prayer. <laughs> it's like, uh, we've all experienced that. So I'm not, you know, if you feel guilty, don't worry. We all are guilty of that. You know, it's like, uh, but the point is, he's not saying, you know, well, tell me what your interpretation is. And, you know, ooh, that's interesting. No, no, Jesus wants to know the right interpretation. And he wants to know, okay, tell me what it says, but tell me what it means. I want to know, do you, do you understand? Do you understand the right application of the text? It's one thing to know where all the connections are, but do you know why that's significant? Do you not only know the what is said, but the so what? And so that's what he's asking him here. Now, if you pay attention to the story, the man answers the first question, but does not answer the second question. He tells him what the law says, but he doesn't really get into the interpretation of it. But you have to appreciate Jesus' methodology here. He just points him to the Bible. He says, all right, what does the text say? What does the Bible say? He doesn't say, oh, what does the culture say? What are people saying? What's on the news? What do you think? He doesn't care about that. He wants to know what does the text say? The text does not change. The text is authoritative. This, is, this book is our uh, authoritative standard. It is the touchstone. It is that standard by which we judge everything else. And so Jesus has such a high regard for Scripture that he directs the man to the text. It is what they have in common here. And let this lesson sink in for you and me. That when we seek to answer people's questions, we want to do it with the Word of God. Also, I think it's helpful that he asks the man how he understands it. I think this is really helpful. If you ask people questions, uh, it just is kind of disarming, right? What do you think? Uh, have you studied the Bible on that? Do you know what the Bible says about that? And then, hey, read this passage. Um, what does that sound like to you? Now, you're not asking them to give the infallible interpretation, but you're just letting them read the text and say, like, doesn't that sound pretty straightforward to you? And you're guiding them along. And that's what Jesus is essentially doing here. What do you think? How do you interpret it? Do you know what the Bible says on this? And so Jesus takes him to the right source. And we, we should always be coming back to the text, coming back to the text. It doesn't matter what traditions have said over the years, though sometimes traditions are good. And if they align with the word of God, then we say, that's great. We're thankful for that. We stand in that tradition. But it's not just because it was said before that we stick with it. It's because it accords with scripture. So this is the right source. Next, notice the right answer. Verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This guy's good. I mean, uh, he would have passed his ordination exam really well. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 5, and from Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. And uh, Leviticus, or sorry, um, Deuteronomy 6 is one of the most significant passages for, uh, for, the, for the Jews. It's the Shema. It's hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And it goes on uh, to explain what he just said. And so it is just like this constantly repeated statement to solidify in them this core teaching. And then he goes to Leviticus as well about loving your neighbor as yourself. And, and so this is a great summary of the law of God. It summarizes our relationship to God and to man. In fact, it really is uh, the summary of the Ten Commandments. It, you have the first table, we call it, which is the commands that relate especially to our relationship with God, vertical, and the second table, which relates especially horizontally to our relationship with our fellow man. And these summarize both. Love God with your entire being, your total devotion to God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus will tell him, you've answered correctly. As far as a summary of the law, that, that's spot on. In fact, Jesus himself, later in, in Matthew 22, in his ministry, will give this very answer. They say, well, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second is, is like it. And so Jesus, he sees this. Yet what a high standard this is. I mean, who can say that they've done this perfectly and perpetually? You've loved God with your entire being and you've loved your neighbor as, as you love yourself? Now, sometimes I think in our psychologized world, some people think that it's three commands. It's love God, love your neighbor, and make sure you love yourself so you can love other people. Um, and that is not what the text is saying. It is saying, love your neighbor as you already love yourself. 
uh, we, there's an epidemic of self-love talk where it's like, you can't help this person unless you really just focus on yourself. You know what that's called? That's called pride. <laughs> to just focus on yourself and think, I just need more me, me, me. It's really, Jesus is saying, you need to love God and you need to love your neighbor because you already love yourself. So just think about, how would I love myself? How would I pamper and take care of myself? Okay, I'm gonna just direct that to loving my neighbor. And so that's what the commands are. And what a high standard that is. And yet, once more, we see the danger of how dangerous it can be to know the truth rightly, get answers correct, and yet not respond to it. Yet not respond to it. People can know the right answers and yet not actually love God. And this leads us then to the righteous standard. The righteous standard in verse 28. Look there, it says, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Hey, you're right. That is a good summary of the law. But then Jesus gives him the consistent standard of God in the scriptures. This devastating statement, do this and you will live. Now you're familiar with the concept of a catchphrase, of a catchphrase, right? Hold your horses, right? I heard it from the, got it from the horse's mouth, right? It's horse-themed. <laughs> There's plenty of fish in the sea, you know, or even just some, to our country, remember the Alamo, or even just 9-11, right? We, these are catchphrases that we, there's meaning that is associated with these that we understand, we, what these phrases mean. They're common phrases. And that's what do this and you will live is. It's a catchphrase. It is a very common catchphrase throughout the Old Testament that Jesus is picking up on. This is not something obscure. This is not something... Um, unknown to this man. This, this would have been something that was known to just about everybody, I think, but especially to an expert in the law. It's found all over the place. It starts in Leviticus 18, verse 5, but it's found in many other places, not only in Leviticus, but Deuteronomy 4, uh, Ezekiel 20, Nehemiah 9, and then Paul will use it in Galatians 3 and Romans 10. And then, of course, it comes up here in Luke chapter 10. It's known, it's not obscure. You would have known what Jesus is saying and what it meant. So we need to know what it means. Do this and you will live. Essentially, it's used in a consistent manner. And so, hence why it would be an understandable catchphrase. Essentially, it's giving the standard of God. It's giving the standard of God. And it's always the same whenever it's quoted. Whenever it's used, according to one writer, it's used to show the height of God's standard, and that no one can keep it. Jesus used this phrase to make that connection, and this is God's standard. This is God's standard, and you can't keep it. Now, what's interesting, um, if you get into the context and you see Leviticus 18, it seems as though what's, what's being said is, was, as Israel is in covenant with God, they're already his covenant people, and he's saying, all right, here are my standards. Do this, and you will live, and, and you'll have covenant blessing." But the problem is, they can't do it. Israel cannot do it. The Mosaic Covenant came to Israel like a toy with no batteries included. You know, don't you hate that? Christmas morning, you open the box. It's so cool. And you can't even play with it because there's no batteries. Uh, batteries sold separately. That's the Mosaic Covenant. It tells you, do this. But there's no batteries included for you to be able to do it. And so there's the standard that's given. The standard is, is true. It's right. It doesn't speak to the reality of whether you're able to do it yourself. And so God gave this. But even within the Mosaic covenant, there was this pointer in saying there's going to be a new covenant. And it's going to do away with the old covenant. The, the, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was given with an expiration date placed on it, like a gallon of milk, you know, expires by this date, you know, expires by when the new covenant comes. And that's exactly what we see. And so, while he's giving the standard there, it, he's, he's giving them the standard to be like, and here's what the law does. It's like, a, it's like an arrow. It's like a pointer. It's like a finger that says, look that way. The, the law, Mosaic law for Israel, was like a, it was like a sign. Someone has said it's like, it's like a life preserver sign that if you're on a boat and it says, life preserver here, you know, and it's, or down, right? And there's a life preserver underneath. Okay, if someone falls in the water and they're drowning, 
don't throw them the sign that says life preserver here. Throw them the life preserver, right? They're not going to be helped by that. And so the, the law's function was to say, look over there. Look forward. Look to the new covenant. That is your answer. That is what will save you. That is what you need. And so the law does that. It points us to where we need to go. It provides the batteries. It's a covenant that has batteries included. And this is why Paul will say, go to Galatians for a moment. Go to Galatians chapter 3. And notice the logic of how Paul will use this in the future. Galatians chapter 3. And we're interested in verse 10 and following. Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Remember Abraham? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But, verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, listen, the quote, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then jump to verse 23. Paul says, now, before faith came, the era of faith, in other words, he's not talking about people didn't have faith before, but this era of these contrasting the old Mosaic system and the new covenant. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so he's saying, yeah, the the law, if you don't like the pointer idea, the sign, it's like a guardian. It's like a tutor who you hire for your kids to keep them in line and, and, uh, and to prepare them for what is to come. And now that the law, the, the, that Christ has come and he's brought the new covenant, this is where you need to look. And so, Jesus quotes this for him, this catchphrase, and he would have known that throughout Israel's history, every time they get this command, do this and you will live, what results? They don't do it. <laughs> they can't do it. So it's, it shows, number one, the standard that is unchanging, but it also shows it's a standard that's unable to be kept in and of yourself. And so while this man wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life, and he quotes the summary of the law, Jesus said and says, all right, go for it. Have at it. Do this and you will live. Jesus knows that it never works. You cannot do it. But this man, he he knows his heart, so he's he's challenging him on this point. He says, all right, go ahead, be perfect. Be perfect. Do it all. See how that goes for you. Here's the point Jesus is making. The standard has always been the same no matter what time in history. The phrase is so well known and used that it shows how consistently the biblical authors use this concept. They were unified in how they understood it. God's standard is always the same. It is unwavering. He says, do this. It's present tense. It indicates it's ongoing. It's to be continuous. Keep on doing this. It's perpetual obedience. Sometimes we use the acronym PEEP or PEEPS like for, you know, those squishy uh, uh, treats at Easter Uh, to remember the standard of the law. It is personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. That's what the law demands. Now, once again, Jesus is not commenting on whether it is possible. He's just saying it's necessary. (laughs) This is what you need to do. And so this is bad news, right? If you can't keep the standard, and so therefore you need mercy and grace. If you can't have righteousness by the law, then there is only one other way to have it through Christ. And so when Paul goes to quote this text in Romans, I guess he did, Paul also wrote Galatians, but in Romans 10, if you go to Romans 10, listen to what he says here in verses one to five. Paul in Romans 10 verse one says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So Paul picks up on it again. He's saying Christ has come. He has brought in the new era of the new covenant so that you can live. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of the new covenant, that there's new life, there's regeneration and resurrection. The batteries are included here. So Christ has come. So don't, don't try to go back to that old system. It won't work. Now, to get practical for us here as believers, as you share the gospel with other people, this is an incredibly common statement you're going to hear from people. You know, when you, when you say, well, um, do you think you're right with God? Or, you know, how do you, uh, how, do you how does a person become right with God? Uh, how do you get to heaven? However you ask that question. You'll often hear some form of, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I, I obey. I, I try to be a good person. I try to obey. You know, I try to be nice. I, uh, I'm not as bad as this person, right? There, there's a standard that is not God's standard. Or they think they can meet up to God's standard, but they, they miss the, the reality that it is something they are unable to do. They have a works-based approach. They think, okay, I just, you know what? Man, this is really convicting. I'm just gonna really work hard in these, this next year, turn over a new leaf. I'm just gonna work hard and be a better person and just really try to obey. No, that is not the solution. That is not the gospel. Uh, that is a damning approach. And so this is the state this man is in. He thinks that he can keep the law. And so Jesus just says, all right, do it. Do it. How's it going for you? How's it going obeying? And so then he tells him the convicting story. The convicting story. That's the consistent standard of scripture that's just, you know this catchphrase. You know it. You know Israel's been unable to do it. What makes you think you're different? And so then he tells him a convicting story to just press it even deeper. Verses 29 to 37. First we see the cause of the story. The cause of the story. Verse 29. But he, designed to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Once again, Luke gives you the reader's edge. He shows you this man's heart. He wants to justify himself. The idea is he wants to show himself to be in the right. His conscience is likely activated at this point. And so what does he do? Does he say, I can't, I can't do it. Be merciful to me, the sinner. No, he doesn't do that. He suppresses his conscience and offers excuses. Look at Luke 18, verse 9. Later, Jesus will speak about some of the religious leaders and their mindset. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I mean, that, that fits this guy. That, he's trying to justify himself. He asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, why ask that question? It's fascinating. He, on the one hand, he, notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask anything about the first table of the law, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he just focuses on the second, loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, who's my neighbor? What is he trying to do? He wants to lessen the standard. Okay, who categorizes as my neighbor? Who, who, do, I, who do I need to do this to, okay? Who, who do I need to... Love in this way. He, he's looking for a, a minimal kind of obedience instead of total obedience. In response, Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. This is why I say this is the cause of the story. It's this man's self-justifying mindset. And he gives him a parable. And we studied parables a little bit, but let me just remind you, um, these are often fictional stories. They are fictional stories that Jesus is trying to teach some, some quality or nature about the kingdom of God and um, uh, there, there's really like three good applications. I, I just came across this uh, not too long ago. And you can think about parables are like either windows, doors, or mirrors. They're like windows at times. They're not all three at the same time necessarily, but some parables are like windows that they let us look into what God's kingdom is like. Show some, some reality about it. At other times, they're like doors that invite the listener to enter into God's kingdom. They open the door and say, come on in. And it, at times, a parable is like a mirror 
And when they're a mirror, they reflect back to the listener the condition of their heart and their need for change. And that is what we have in this parable. It is a mirror. It is a mirror that Jesus is holding up to this man to show him his need for change, his, who he really is. Jesus shows this man how impossible it is to do what this man does. No one sacrifices this greatly for a complete stranger. And so that's the cause of the story. Notice next the crisis of the story, the crisis of the story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, while the parable is a made-up story, this road is a real road. It is a real road in Israel. It is known as the Pass of Adumim. It is a descent of about 3,300 feet and about 17 miles. It is a, a precarious road at times. It are caves throughout, which made it a, a great place for robbers and bandits to hide out. And it, it, so it is a true-to-life story. You could very much imagine... Uh, someone traveling on this road getting robbed. I mean, it would be like starting a story and saying, a man was going down a dark alley at night in New York City, you know, on the bad part of town. And you're like, ooh. So you're kind of expecting something bad to happen. And that's exactly what takes place here. He's in a desperate condition and a dangerous condition. He's, he's near dead. And then he introduces us to the characters of the story. Now, of course, this man is a character in the story, but, but he's kind of the, the foil. He's, like, he's, the, he's the basis for the story. He's the crisis of the story. But then we see those who respond to him, the characters. There's three of them in verses 31 to 35. The first two are, we'll just call them like the MVPs of Judaism. I mean, like, they are all-stars. They, if any, would help this man and fulfill the law. So look at verse 31. Now, by chance, stop there. By chance, a priest. Jesus uses a term that is, is kind of funny. I mean, it, it, that Jesus is using. It, it's like the term, like, it just so happened. What a lucky break. What a coincidence. I mean, this is, Jesus doesn't believe in chance or coincidence. He believes in providence, right? Because he knows God orders and directs all things. But he's being kind of uh, coy, if you will. He's, he's trying to make you go, oh, how fortunate he wants you to think this guy's about to do something, right? What a lucky break that one of the most religious people would, would just happen to walk by. That's his point. Someone you would expect to do the law perfectly. A priest, here he comes. And he's expecting you to think he would do something, but he doesn't. He sees the man and then he kind of goes on the other way. And he avoids the man. No, we don't have to speculate as to motives. Why, you know, what's this issue? Because this guy's made up. <laughs> you don't need to speculate on the motives of a made up person. But the point is, he just doesn't do it. He doesn't care for this man. He knows what the word of God says. And there's numerous passages about helping those in need in the Old Testament. But he just totally ignores that. But then you have another character whom you also expect to help. Look at verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. And he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, a Levite was not a priest, but they were assistants to the priests. And he as well does nothing and just passes by, ignores the man in his plight. And so Jesus sets the story up and has those who are most religious and likely to act out of God's commandment and fulfill the standard, failing to do so. But they, these two might even embody the wise and understanding that was referred to in verse 21. But they're blind to the truth. Reminds me of Matthew 5, 20 and verse 48. Matthew 5, 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so here, here are guys who, you're the best case scenario, and they don't do anything. Then we read verse 33, and this is like the turning point. This is the, the shocking moment in Jesus' story. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. A Samaritan? I mean, what a twist in the story for those listening. And actually, it's fronted in the text that to have the Samaritan up front in the sentence. 
you would have expected, okay, you have a priest and you have a Levite and then you have, you know, Joe Israelite. You know, just like the normal Israelite who's not, you know, maybe you're highest likely. And so maybe, maybe Jesus, t- Jesus telling a story about the leadership of Israel and how like, yeah, they're, they're not so great, but that common person, yeah. But that's not his point. He says a Samaritan. I mean, this is like the, you know, the, the needle goes off of the record. You know, that's an old reference. Uh, it's like, <laughs> and the story stops. People look up and they think, what are you talking about? This is a despised person. We've already talked about Samaritans before and covered that. I mean, remember, uh, the, the disciples, two of the disciples wanted to cast down fire on a Samaritan city for not welcoming Jesus. Let me just give you a summary. Samaritans were half-breeds, heterodox, and hated. Right? They were half-breeds. They, when when the, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity, that, that area in the north was repopulated and by other uh, Gentiles, and there was an intermarrying between some who were left and, and, and the, the Gentiles, and so they were kind of half-Jews, if you will. They're half-breeds. They, they were heterodox or even heretical at times. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. They had a, a rival temple that they built to rival the one in Jerusalem. And, and so they were heterodox and they were hated. They were hated. People would just pass around the region of Samaria instead of go through it intense hatred. And so Jesus picks one of the most hated people to the Jews to be the hero of this story. And this man, the Samaritan, has compassion in his heart, leading to his external care at great cost to himself. Look at verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, this Samaritan, the story is traveling, so maybe he's on a business journey, we don't know, but uh, these are desperate times, and so it's likely that to bandage him up, he tears some of his own clothing uh, to help him out. And then he oil, put, uses some of his oil and wine, and oil likely to soften the wound, then wine to disinfect it. And then he, he puts him on his animal, and he probably walks himself, so this man can be on the animal. And then look at verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii after bringing him to this inn and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, we know inns are not the greatest places at this time, but this is his only option. So he goes there and he puts him up at his own expense. And then he comes and he gives him like, maybe like two months worth of, of, uh, of a hotel bill. It's like, he, it would be like he just left his credit card with the innkeeper and it's just like, yeah, whatever you need to charge, just swipe it, you know, and just take care of this guy. I mean, it is so lavish, it's unheard of. And this guy is a total stranger. I mean, this would be like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, it would be like finding a homeless person and just like bringing him somewhere and just giving him your credit card and be like, yeah, just take care of this guy and just, you know, oh, I'll check back in two months, you know, like something like it. It, it, It'd be crazy. Look at verse 35. The next day, he took out... Oh, wait. Yeah, we read that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so he... The point here is the lavishness and the extreme love towards this utter stranger. And, and then this leads us to the conclusion of the story in verses 36 and 37. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Did you catch what Jesus just did there? What did Jesus just do? He changed the issue. He changed the question. The man asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus flips it on him and asks the man who proved to be a neighbor to the man. He flips it on him. Jesus is, is, is essentially saying, hey, it's not that they have to be your neighbor. You must be their neighbor. It's as if Jesus is saying, you don't even know the right questions to ask. What hope do you have to justify yourself? You don't even know what, what question to ask. You got it wrong. You must be the neighbor to other people, to anyone who's in need. And you must do it like this, this extreme way. This is the standard. And the man answers in verse 37, Jesus' question. He said, 
the one who showed him mercy. That's the one who acted as a neighbor, the one who showed him mercy. You know, the lawyer, he can't even say the word Samaritan, right? He just, yeah, the one who showed him mercy. Uh, we, our, my kids and I, uh, we saw a, a trailer, movie trailer for a new like Willy Wonka movie. And uh, in the trailer, there's uh, the, the rich people are getting upset at Willy Wonka for making all this chocolate and stuff and, and how people like it and everything. And there's this like meeting of some of these wealthy people. And uh, one of the guys says, um, uh, he says, yeah, even the poor like him. And one of the rich guys, like he starts to go, mm. he starts to make like a throw up uh, face. Uh, and, and they say like, yeah, he, doesn't, he really doesn't like the poor. And when they say it again, he's like, and he's like about to throw up again. And that's like this guy. It's like whenever you say the word Samaritan, he's like has a gag reflex and he's going, you know, and he can't say it. He's just, yeah, that guy over there. And he just, his, his distaste for him continues. And the story ends with Jesus getting the last word here. He, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, what does that sound like to you in our story? That sounds pretty similar to do this and you will live. It's actually the same word, do. So Jesus just doubles down again. You still don't get it? Go ahead and do this, and you will live. In other words, when he's saying go and do this, he's, he's really telling him, unless you recognize your inability to do all this, and that this is an inta- impossible task before you, there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. And you think, where's the grace in this? Where's the grace? This just sounds like law. Exactly, because Jesus knows this man's heart. And what is, the, what is the use of telling someone about the grace of God if they've not yet been humbled by the law of God? If they've not yet seen, you can't do it, you need God's grace, why tell them about God's grace? And so Jesus just says, let me hold up the mirror to you until you can see it. And so he tells them this convicting story that for, for most would say, what a standard, I can't do that. And then you look to the one who's come to bring the new covenant and to bring life. Look to me. But he doesn't, he doesn't want Jesus. He wants to test Jesus and even likely discredit him. You think about how this Samaritan acts towards this man. You might think the only person you've ever loved like that is yourself. The only person you've taken care of like that is you. And that's why Jesus says, or this man says, and the law says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember what Paul says when he's talking to husbands in Ephesians 5? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he goes on and he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And when he calls husbands to love their own wives as their own bodies. And so he's saying, hey, just think about how do I care for myself? How do I think about, you know, how I want to have my own time and how, how I want things to be and, and my preferences. And then just, just put that onto your wife and say, I'm gonna love her that way. Like, like I wanna be loved. Like, like I love myself already. And you just love others that way. Husbands love your wives that way. And, and that's this idea here. No one's loved like this. No one, no one loves other people like that. They love themselves like that all the time. And that's Jesus' point. You don't love like this all the time. And so you need grace. This is the consistent standard and the convicting story. It's not meant to tell us something to do, but to convict us of our inability. So what is the sermon in a sentence? The unchanging scriptures show the standard for salvation to the self-righteous and self-justifying so that they might stop striving and seek salvation in the Savior who has come. It's not a story primarily calling you to be a better neighbor. This is a story convicting you that you are not a good neighbor. If anyone resembles the good Samaritan, it is Jesus himself who at great cost to himself gave his life for ours, though we were his enemies. There are certainly principles, secondary principles of application you might draw from this passage, but they are not the main point of the text. They are certainly not a... Uh, a proof text to say that the church's primary mission should be social action, which it's not wrong to do good to both believers and those of the household of faith and others were given opportunity to, but that is not at all uh, what this text is focusing upon. 
the issue is only God can change a person's heart. And that takes us back once again to chapter 10, verse 21. God has hidden it from some, the wise and understanding, and he's revealed it to others. And so don't miss the point of this parable. As one person put it, the parable of the Good Samaritan is bad news. It's bad news. But you must start with the bad news before you can really appreciate the good news of the gospel. That though you're an image bearer, created in God's image, you've broken God's law, you've sought self-sovereignty, you wanna do it your own way, and countless times we've broken his law and spurned him, and we deserve his wrath, we deserve God's judgment, and we will face his judgment, because God is a good God, unless we come to hear and embrace the person and work of Christ, to see that he lived perfectly, obeying God's law, always submitting himself to the, the will of God, always obeying the law, perfectly obeying, bringing the new covenant to where there can be new life in our hearts, where we were dead in our sins, bringing forgiveness of sins, and one day resurrection from the dead, like unto his resurrection. And so when we recognize our sin and our inability, we say, God, I can't meet the standard, and I've broken your law, forgive me of my sin, I turn away from it, I repent, I acknowledge my sin before you, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. Be merciful to me, God, the sinner. And you look to Christ and you receive him as your only hope because he is the perfect one and he grants his perfection to you. He gives it to you as a gift when you trust in him. He forgives your sins, credits you with righteousness and assures you that you will inherit eternal life in him. You must start with that bad news so that you see your need for the good news and you embrace Christ. One preacher said this, he says, whereas the law says, do this and you will live, the gospel says, live and you will do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you that <clears throat> your word is so clear. It often takes work for us to get at the meaning. But once it is unfolded, Lord, it is, it is clear, it is compelling, it is convicting, and yet at the same time, Lord, it brings great consolation and comfort. Lord, we, we acknowledge you have a standard that is perfect, it is good, it is righteous and holy, and yet, Lord, we acknowledge our sinfulness, how we've broken your law, how we, we, we cannot make up for the wrongs we've done and we, we don't have it within us to perfectly obey from the heart every time. And so we need the gospel. We need Christ. And so we love him because we have trusted ourselves to him, entrusted ourselves to him. And we know the experience of forgiveness of our sins, the hope of eternal life, and the hope of a present relationship with you to have your life in us and Lord, we know that you transform us so that we do increasingly desire to love our neighbor, to love you with all of our hearts. Though we do it imperfectly, Lord, you are at work to transform us and change us and we want to, to love others what you've loved us. So help us in that. But Lord, most of all, may we see and not be deceived that we are right with you when we are not, that we would call out to you and rest in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's respond with that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace.